and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. So for today's podcast, I'm joined by Dan Mareels and Peter Lehnen, who are the founders of a fascinating company and one that is really close to my heart uh, for people that know me and uh, have listened to the show for a while. It's a business called Magnax and it's was created by them to commercialize and develop axial flux motor technology. So we're on to a proper motors episode today. Thanks, Dan, and thanks, Peter, for joining me. Thank you, Ryan. So we've got uh, a double bubble episode here with with both of you and uh, and actually more than one business that we're going to talk about, um, hopefully, but the theme running all the way through will be axial flux. If we could start off, though, by just getting your your backgrounds and and kind of what brought you to where you are um today so so peter could you just uh give us a bit of your personal background sure so i'm um the original founder of uh, of magnax so i started uh, the company on my own in uh 2015. Uh, i'm also the inventor uh, of the the motor concept um before magnax uh, I've been an engineering consultant and a mechanical designer uh, for about 20 years, where I was mainly active in uh, machine design, uh, automation projects, and also some uh, product design. Uh, so I'm a really technical guy. Um, and currently uh, within the company, I'm mainly in charge of a long-term technological roadmap. Uh, I'm also responsible for the IP uh, strategy. And Dan, same question for you. Uh, just tell us a bit about your background. And... Yeah, sure. Uh, really quick. So I'm an uh, aeronautical engineer by training, then uh, have been active in the market, in the corporate world for some time. Started a company with some some others in 2013 around cloud computing. Uh, exited that after four years, uh, sold a part of my shares and invested that then in uh, Manax. Uh, how did it came? So basically I was looking for new projects in 2016. I was sitting, standing next to Peter at the school gates and asking him, okay, what are you working on doing? Uh, I'm inventing, working on a new kind of electric motor in my garage. So I thought yeah, that might be interesting. Let's check it out. And uh, I saw, okay, it's quite serious. He he knew uh, quite a quite a bit about it. Uh, did also a bit of my due diligence because he was already collaborating with the local university here, Ghent University, who was already uh, doing research on this technology since 2009. Uh, and then we uh, agreed that we could join forces. Uh, me were working more on the business, and he working more on the technology. Um, and that's uh, yeah how the initial collaboration started in 2016. Wow. So a few years have passed by now, um, but maybe could you um, just tell us, Dan, what Magnax is and, and, and what it does as a business? Yeah, so in the core, Magnax is a deep tech startup. So it means there is a lot of uh, R&D research that has been going on and is still going on. 
So the core technology is a new motor topology that you know very well, which is called Axial Flux. The difference is that our uh, technology or motor topology uh, has one stator in the middle and two rotor disks, one on each side, which is um, yeah not super new because Axaflux already exists uh, for 150 years, but it is quite challenging to make it work and also to prepare it for mass production. Uh, so that's some, that's what we have been working on since 2016. Um, and yeah, we are now, we have been spinning out two different companies around this technology. One is Traxel, which is focusing on further developing this technology for automotive. And the other one is called Axel Propulsion, which is further developing this technology for aerospace. And both markets need very low weight motors uh, because that's typically what you have with Axel Flux is uh, very low weight and very compact, more like a disc shape instead of a uh, sausage form factor, which you have with a normal electric motor. And that's uh, yeah, where the markets in automotive and aerospace uh, are looking for. And so this is the, the Taurus uh, style, I think, is that how sometimes it's referred to? Because uh, it kind of looks like a donut, uh, kind of look like a donut motor. So Pete, Peter, like back then particularly, because now it's easy with hindsight because actual flux has gained a little bit more kind of uh, fame or, or um, sort of pub awareness uh, in, in the last few years. But back then it was pretty little known um, motor concept. What was it that that led you to that um, that, that particular type of motor? Well, personally, um, to start with, I've always been interested in uh, electric motors, funnily enough. So my father is also a very technical guy, and he um, he once gave me a book about electric motors, which was still from his school time. Uh, and I think I was about 12 years old, and I was really fascinated by uh, <laughs> by the way electric motors worked. Of course, they were the standard induction motors, so no, no talk about axial flux motors back then. Um, and I've also also been interested uh, in electrical vehicles since since for for whenever I remember. So when I was young, together with my father, we once electrified um, a go kart. So we put a car battery in it and put a twelve volt motor in it. And I think it was a combination of the two which which led me to to really well. Uh, closely follow what was happening actually in, in that technology. Uh, and then, of course, um, I noticed uh, a small company uh, called Yasa, British company, which which uh, claimed to have uh, uh, invented or uh, a better topology of electric motor. Um, and I was very interested and very intrigued by the, by the topology. That was back then, it was Tim Woolmer uh, who, who basically came up with it. And I then immediately, well, I saw that this that, that this was in fact true. So if if you want to build the most efficient uh, and electromagnetically optimized motor, then it's a yokeless axial flex machine. So it has inherent uh, electromagnetic advantages which you do not have with any other topology. So I really followed. Uh, the, the the company, their products uh, quite closely. I followed uh, their patents, which they filed. Um, and back then, I, I, I already had some the idea in the back of my head, like, okay, so what they're doing is interesting. They chose a certain technical path to solve certain 
problems uh, in manufacturing, for instance. And then I already had the idea, okay, maybe it can be done differently. Or or at least I thought I would have done that slightly differently. But okay, I wasn't planning on doing anything with it. And then uh, when I was still working as an um, um, independent consultant, uh, one of my last projects actually um, required uh, a very light uh, electric motor, uh, which we could not find on, on the market. And basically then I, I thought, okay, um, this axial flux topology might be very suitable for this project. Uh, we can talk a little uh, more about it later if you want. And I basically decided to develop uh, a generator based on, because a generator is the same as an electric motor, as your audience probably knows. Uh, uh, so, and then I decided to to apply this technology and to build uh, this generator myself based on the axial flux technology and based on the design which I already had in my head for a few years. And that's actually how the company got started. So, based on this generator, uh, it got quite some uh, some attention. That's also the project that Dan saw when he came to to visit me in my garage. I was actually building that machine on my own. And that, that's how the whole company got started, how the, 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 the ball got, got rolling. What were they, the sort of things, like what are the differentiating features? Like what were the things that you decided you could do differently? You, may, you, may, you mentioned others in the market were working on those sort of tourist machines. Where, was, where, where did you see the gaps? Well, mainly uh, the design for manufacturing. So I saw indeed a competitor with a performant machine. Uh, but in my eyes, it was very difficult to build and certainly to produce it uh, in, in mass production. Uh, and because I had quite some experience in, in, in product design and product manufacturing, those two uh, insights basically came together. So, uh, and and I, it occurred to me that, that, that there were actually easier ways to, to, to build this type of machine. So electromagnetically, almost identical, uh, you have the Oculus Actual Flux uh, topology, uh, but but the way you implement it, the way you actually put all the components together, also the way you do the whole uh, cooling, because that's a big challenge in this type of, of machine, I chose to do it in a different way. Yeah, okay, interesting. And, and Dan, uh, to go back to you on that, the first time you saw this, can you remember what you, you thought of it? Was it kind of like uh, an epiphany or...? <laughs> No, 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 totally not, not totally not epiphany. So of course I came out cloud computing. So that was completely, completely new kind of technology for me. I've had, I've seen uh, motors, electric motors in my engineering uh, university years, of course, but I had to dig in decently. I have been, had been, have been talking with uh, university professors and so on to check out, okay, what do you think about it? Uh, is also this technology potentially rightly timed in the market because that's also as you know very important for a startup to time the technology very well and of course at that time we were also quite naive so we believed okay we will uh, build these machines and we will put them in cars uh, next year or the, the year after and then we're off it's uh, a lot of uh, it has been a lot of challenge to make it work and also to make all these preparations so you know it's uh, around 50 people uh, almost all engineers and we are still very diligently working on on uh, on, on the, the the fundamental R and D, but also uh, on 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 the design for manufacturing part, of course. So 
So no, initially it was unclear for me, but I think you have to have a bit of naivety in the beginning to really start with something. Because if I would have known the, the, the huge long challenge that we had ahead, I don't know if I would uh, restart it, uh, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah, if only you knew then what you knew now. Yeah, that's that would have made a big difference indeed. Um, but yeah, that's history, of course, uh, and that's how new uh, innovations are deployed. So happy to have had this experience. Peter, on the axial flux machines, I mean, you know, some people will know it's a concept that's been around for a long time. Some people might not have heard of it, though. So can you just tell us? what we mean by axial flux. Yeah, so the name uh, axial uh, is, is referring to the direction of the, well, the magnetic flux inside the machine. Uh, so an electric motor uh, works by uh, interacting uh, electric flux uh, from the stator to the rotor. And in a lot of machines uh, nowadays, certainly EV motors, the rotor flux is generated by, uh, by permanent magnets. Uh, so that's what we call a permanent magnet machine, which is, um, well, gaining in popularity. It certainly has gained in popularity since the advent of the very strong neodymium magnets. Uh, so they more or less caused a breakthrough in, in permanent magnet machines. So these machines are, are, well, basically the most efficient and compact and power dense machines uh, on the market. But most machines historically have been radial flux. Uh, so with radio flux machines, you have a, typically you have a cylindrical stator, so that's the stationary part. And within that, you have a, also a cylindrical rotor uh, turning inside this stator. Historically, uh, most motors um, uh, have been built like that because, well, they're actually quite easy to produce. Certainly, when they were invented more than 100 years ago, these these machines but with the production methods that were available back then th those were basically the only types of motors you could build so the radial flux ones uh so with with the machinery of back then you really could not build an efficient or a good uh, actual flux motor uh, although actual flux concept itself was already invented uh, by faraday quite a long time ago so uh, so actually the the radial flux machine kept gaining um momentum and 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 at at a certain time all all electric motors were were um, were radial flux um so it's only uh, since very recently that the axial flux actually is gaining traction and the reason is i think manu manufacturing um capabilities but well two things design capabilities and manufacturing capabilities so to design an axial flux motor you really need to do quite complicated uh, 3D simulations because um, there is a 3D flux inside the machine. While a radial flux machine, you can basically slice it and do a 2D uh, 2D simulation. Uh, then, and in the manufacturing, like I said, you need different manufacturing techniques. You you need some some quite uh, advanced uh, polymer materials as well to be able to build a stator. It's it's also a bit more difficult to assemble the machine as well. Uh, you need some some tighter tolerances in some places, and all those things only became available for the last, let's say, ten or fifteen years, basically. It's interesting you mentioned because I I often heard and in fact I said myself the 
that issue around three-dimensional uh, magnetic design and that being a, a really big limitation of um, the initial sort of or the, the progress in in axial flux because it really is just like the last couple of years that those design tools have become widely available where you can do three-dimensional magnetic flux design so the question for you i guess would be how on earth were you managing to do that um before those tools were available did you create your own design tools or did you find a, a different approach so how, how did how did you manage to overcome that design issue well, actually, uh, when we started doing designing the motors, uh, and even before, like uh, when when Yaza started their uh, development, those tools were already uh, available. They were, well, they had to be modified. Uh, like we, we we also had to build our own models, but the 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 calculation software itself was was actually already available. Uh, it was not very user user friendly, so it took a lot of effort to really get the results from it, which you wanted, uh, but it, it, it was all already possible. While for the radial flux motors, that was almost automated. You just put in the parameters which you wanted from the motor and the software basically generated the whole optimized design already. So, so it took a, a lot more uh, manual effort and, and engineering work to, to really get to a, to a good electromagnetic design. And on top of the electromagnetics, the the other challenge area with with axial flux, and actually you mentioned it earlier, is the more complex uh, thermal pathway. So getting the heat out of the machine. What kind of design approach did you employ to to work that out? Yeah. So indeed, on the cooling, um, well, the machines are much more power and and torque dense than than the typical radial flux machine. So we are talking about two to three times the, the power and torque density of, of a, a high-end uh, radial flux motor, which is, of course, very interesting. But uh, if you have more or less the same efficiency between the radial flux and the axial flux motor, that means that you have to extract the same amount of waste heat from a much smaller volume, basically. So, so that's why you need a much more performant cooling uh, architecture. Uh, it's, it's much more demanding. Uh, so the, basically, the only solution which is possible is doing direct cooling, uh, direct li liquid cooling, where you directly extract the heat with the liquid from where it's generated. So meaning directly cooling the coils, the copper, uh, even the bus bars. In our case, we, we even directly cool the, the magnets, the rotors. So everything which generates heat, heat gets directly cooled by, well, in our case, uh, oil. Is it like an oil spray or oil 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 spray inside the motor? For the rotor, it's more or less it's like a, a spray. Yes, for the for the stator, it's it's um, quite intricated flow pattern uh, that that's that's generated inside the stator. Just even getting to that point, was it experimental research that that kind of helped you? Um, get there or because you like you said with the radial flux motor you have these tools that are pretty much automated for the em but also for the thermal and you come out with the model it's reasonably close um a bit of an experimentation but for the for the axle you might have had the electromagnetic design but did you were you getting the sort of thermal design as well out of the tools or were you having to you know so it was a lot of uh, experimentation like you said um the flow tools they 
well, they they are available, but the problem there is that to get a good simulation, um, it's extremely difficult. So if you really want to have, basically, it's it's you can only start doing these flow simulations or thermal flow simulations once you really already have defined your concept and already refined it. I did not find it useful to to get started with these kind of simulations. So you just took a hands-on approach, built a lot of prototypes, uh, and just uh, saw what what performed the best. So a prototype with a lot of temperature sensors in it, uh, let it run and see how it how it performs. Yeah. Tell us about the business concept of Magna. So how's the company structured? What's the business there to do? Because that's quite interesting feature. On the Magnax level, um, yeah, actually, what 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 we understood at a certain point in the histories was that there was a big T1 uh, called Magna active in the automotive world. And when we switched from the wind turbine business, which was quite conservative, uh, that's why we switched to this to to a field of smaller high speed motors. Um, we were active in automotive, and there we had Magna. So and uh, exhibitions, they started to ask us, are you like the experimental division of Magna or something? And then we understood, okay, maybe we have to switch to a different name. And then we also understood we received quite some uh, incoming sales leads from the aerospace world also. So we saw, okay, this technology might be useful for different kinds of markets. And then we thought, okay, maybe we should just structure Manax as a holding company, which is taking in the, the investments. Uh, so yeah, we, we, we gathered around 36 million euros of, of investment money and then organized the company as such that the, 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 the daughter companies are operationally organized, uh, focusing on their respect, respective markets. Then you could ask, okay, why, why separate teams? But we, we noticed that if you try to engineer both automotive and aerospace products together with the same engineering team that's not working very well because the specifications the market timing is quite different in in these markets and also yeah in, in aerospace it's all weight reduction that counts but in automotive it's all about cost reduction making sure that you can repeat you can build hundreds of thousands of these motors where cost is very important where aerospace it's all about uh, weight reduction so that's a completely different engineering philosophy Therefore, we uh, organized separate companies and separate uh, engineering teams. Another reason is also, yeah, this is deep technology. It is strategic technology. So in terms of exit scenario, it's also important to yeah try to debundle things up front. Um, because if, if for some reason the Axel company wants to work with Airbus, Airbus says, okay, Sorry, but I don't want to see uh, that your automotive division is completely attached to this. Uh, I don't want uh, them to check our things out. So it has to, there has to be a wall in between. And there is no better wall, of course, if you have separate companies. Yeah. And uh, is the model going to be, or is, is the model like sort of technology development and then partnering, sort of licensing? Or is it, do you plan to get into production? Are you setting up a plant? Or what? what's the actual sort of business model going to be? Yeah, and the business model is indeed, we are a technology uh, company. So we, we, we don't have the ambition to deploy manufacturing facilities. 
for the main reason I'm talking about our automotive part now is because, yeah, the, the bigger OEMs with who we are working, they do have their own resources. They have a lot of people. They are already specialized in gearboxes and, and sometimes powertrains. So you, we see more and more a uh, trend of completely insourcing the technology directly into the OEM. They are very good at deploying facilities and they have people. So we focus on what we are good at, which is developing the technology, making sure that we have the A and B samples, that the, the, the prototypes are also prepared for mass production. And then the the customers, uh, together with them, we further develop it into powertrains, and they are really good at, at at the manufacturing part anyway. And and is that typical customer on the automotive side a, a tier one or is it an OE, an automotive OEM? I'm interested because of the there's a lot of discussion at the moment about verticalization on the OEM side, which has sort of come back around. <laughs> you know, the OEMs got rid of all of their tier internal tier suppliers years and years ago but because of uh the fight with tesla and their kind of approach people seem to be re reopening it but are, are you effectively enabling that or, or are you still with the tier ones as well we, we we don't make a choice but what we see is indeed the trend that oems are more and more insourcing technologies directly and that's a strategic thing of course um you see that also it, it has also its, its advantages. Eh? If you see that uh, Tesla is uh, developing everything in-house, they can completely attach the complete supply chain uh, in, in, in one uh, philosophy, in one, in one strategic uh, portfolio. Um, it's, it's, it seems smart to us also to attach our business model to, to that one. But we don't say no to tier ones um, if they have the vision uh, and, and it complies with ours. Why not, of course? And I, I probably know the answer to this before I even ask it, but you're able to give us any names, tell us who you're working with. Yeah, you know the answer, but indeed we have very strict NDAs. And as you know, these companies, they don't want competitors to know that they are potentially working with, with this new technology. So that's why we have to have these NDAs. Uh, so this is, yeah, as I said, strategic technology. Um, that's a bit a pity from a marketing point of view, uh, of course. <laughs> Build those case studies. Is it? It's fair to say though that you are working with some very big OEs and tier ones. Exactly. Swinging back around, so Peter, the you know the normal debate on axial technology tends to come down to so in, with radial flux motor that the direction people have gone for high power density is these very, these high speed machines. So sort of 20,000 RPM plus, I think 22,000. It's a bit of a magic number at the moment. Obviously axial flux uh, doesn't tend to be high speed machines. Um, this is, it's a different approach, but what, what would you say, what's your position in terms of the, the competitiveness of uh, the axial technology compared to high speed radial? So it's true that, of course, to generate power, uh, you have to multiply the motor stoic by the speed. And the, the, the easiest way to gain the power so is just to increase the speed of the, of the motor. That's basically power which you get for free. So that's why, uh, of course, uh, most motor manufacturers try to, uh, to increase the speed uh, as much as possible, where the typical limit is actually the centrifugal force uh, on the rotor uh, so uh, that's the limit if you would go higher in speed the rotor would basically explode so that's all good and well but of course if you do that if you just keep 
increasing the power by increasing the speed, you 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 also create a few problems uh, down the line. Uh, for instance, MVH becomes a real challenge, but also this high speed, of course, has to be brought down to the real speed of the vehicle. As you so you need to go to a transmission, and of course the whole, the, the higher you go in motor speed, uh, the the larger the transmission ratio becomes, and a, a big transmission ratio. You would typically the higher you go, the more gears or the more gear sets that you also need. So the biggest problem that I see is is basically the efficiency of the gearbox. Uh, so you you really do everything to push the efficiency of the motor up to the last half a percent point, but then you lose efficiency because your your speed has to be brought down so much. So if you have to add one gear stage, you easily lose one percent uh, efficiency over your entire efficiency map, which is basically huge. Uh, so that's why we basically take another approach by trying to generate as much torque as possible from a certain uh, motor size, certain motor volume, and not go so high in speed. Uh, so for an, an, an axial flux machine, the top speed, top nominal speed is typically between, let's say 10 to, 10 to 12,000 RPM, something like that. Uh, maybe a bit higher as well in the future, but the torque is is is, is much uh, higher compared to a radial flex motor. So even though the motors then have the same efficiency over their entire efficiency map, you would still get a higher driving efficiency because your gearbox is the gear ratio is much lower, much smaller. Uh, so that that's where you have an 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 efficiency benefit. And of course, then you also have the weight of the gearbox. Uh, a smaller gearbox is much less weight as well. So both the motor and the gearbox are much lower in weight and that's that's where the compounding effect starts uh, because then you, you because you have this higher efficiency you also need a little less battery and then the, the vehicle is even lighter and then you, it's, it's even more efficient and it starts compounding so it's one of these sort of system level if you look at the components in isolation maybe the difference is not so uh, interesting but at a system level it becomes much more um, you, you mentioned about the speed of an axial machine there, uh, and that, that's to me it's an interesting thing. I think people will be interested in what what is it that limits the the speed of an axial machine? Uh, well, it's easy. It's the size of the rotor uh, because the motor topology looks more like a, a, a disc rather than than uh, a cylinder. The the diameter tends to be bigger than for a radial flux motor. So let's say for automotive um, axial flux machine the rotor diameter would be something like let's say 240 or 250 millimeters while for the same power a, a radial flex motor would be more like 120 130 millimeters so that's a huge difference in size and of course um, the centrifugal force is, is is basically a square function of diameter of the of the rotor uh, so that means that the, the the centrifugal force gets much higher really quickly at, at the farther you or the bigger you make your 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 rotors. Uh, so that's that's what limits the 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 speed of the of the rotor, uh, well both in radial and in axial flex machines. So it's kind of the thing that gives it its strength. <laughs> it's the the surface area and the size of the rotor is 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 the thing that gives it a limit as well. You mentioned. 12k being the sort of you know nominal max for now 
what what is it that could extend that speed range? Uh, we are working on that. So um, we see possible routes towards higher speeds. Uh, I don't expect we will reach 20,000 RPM uh, with this size of motor, uh, um, so typical automotive, but but I I think that somewhere close to 14 or 15,000 RPM should be possible. Um, and that's just by improving the mechanical, mechanical design of the rotor, uh, so incorporating some high strength materials as well. But it's it's a very complicated complicated thing uh, because you you, uh, you you are you are working with different materials. So the rotor has different functions. It's an electromagnetic fun function. It also has a mechanical function. Uh, you can you also have to deal with NVH with vibrations, magnetic forces, uh, quite vulnerable uh, magnets as well. Uh, so they are they they are mechanically quite vulnerable but also thermally uh, so there is typically a, a very strict temperature limit on, on the magnets uh, so the higher you go in speed the higher your losses also become in the magnet so the hotter they get as well so you really need a very good cooling system as well to extract the heat from these magnets uh, and, and that all becomes much more important the higher you go uh, in speed so there is probably a, a practical limit where you would not really want to go above because it would create so much other issues that it's not worth uh, the trouble anymore. Uh, and I, I guess it's around 14 or 15,000 RPM uh, nominal speed. And that would fit in quite nicely with not having to get into exotic gearbox technology and uh, yeah. So it's a... So our goal is to to work with with uh, basically a planetary gearbox uh, so the motor topology also the size really lends itself well to a combination with uh, with a planetary gearbox and preferably as well a single stage planetary gearbox because that's also a very light gearbox um, topology it needs a certain diameter uh, which fits our motor as well and they seem to be made for each other so Nevertheless, we also see advantages in combination with uh, lay shaft uh, gearboxes uh, because we saw a case where, yeah, in combination with the high speed radio flux motor to get to the to the, the, the to the power, uh, they really had to use a uh, dual speed gearbox, but uh, they got the necessary torque at a much lower speed with axial flux motors, so they could basically reduce the complexity of the gearbox significantly, which also led to a, a certain uh, capex reduction on the gearbox level. So going from a two-speed transmission to a single speed was enabled? By using an axial flux motor, because you get you get the required torque at a lower speed, basically. Well, one question um, I've got noted down, and, and Peter, you just you mentioned this, you, you mentioned NVH, particularly with the Taurus-style machine. One of the things that's often discussed is the, the torque ripple uh, from that machine compared to some other motor topologies. What, what is it, um, what, have, what have you guys done in, in terms of addressing torque ripple and noise from the machine that uh, is making it better in, in the market? So um, I think torque ripple, if we are on the same level as the typical uh, radial flex machine already, um, I think we are... Well, the main reason is that we use uh, concentrated windings, so um, fractional fractional slot concentrated windings. They tend to uh, lower the the torque ripple of a permanent magnet machine. 
where the the most radial flux machines they are uh, distributed winding and and they tend to suffer more it's counter counterintuitive in fact but they suffer more from from uh, torque ripple so that's that's one thing then the second is to have the right uh, pull slot combination in the machine uh, as you know you can have different numbers of magnets and different numbers than of of stator teeth or coils and they all create different uh, uh properties are diff different advantages different uh, disadvantages so ch by choosing the right one you can also minimize torque ripple as well there are of course some other things you can do to further minimize it like shaping shaping the magnets giving them a certain uh, shape and then you are already at a really uh, acceptable torque ripple level what you can further do and that's that's quite a modern technique is is, is implementing a certain um, control strategy in your inverter which further reduces the torque ripple. So that's something we are also working on at the moment, uh, which which also seems quite powerful. So I think that's that that issue is is actually completely under control. And and you mentioned inverters. There is that a technology area that uh, you guys have have been working in, or do you tend to use work with a partner for inverter technology? No, we are uh, developing our own uh, inverter, so silicium carbide inverter. We actually decided to start that project quite uh, quite some some time ago because we realized that the motor and the inverter they are like brother and sister. They they really have to be developed together to to be able to work uh, in, in the most optimum to get along nicely. <laughs> to get along nicely, yeah, indeed, indeed. So you you can of course buy an inverter. But we we do that. We have also some standard inverters for on the test bench, etc. Uh, the motors work nicely with it. But to really to push the the the, the combination, the the ultimate, you you basically need to design them together. Yeah, it's a bit like uh, what the Lucid CEO said like three years ago. If you expect uh, a really state of the art powertrain design. You cannot expect that if you're combining different off-the-shelf components. You have to look at it from a holistic way. And as you can see, their uh, powertrain is also pretty good. It's a radio flux one, but it's it's, it's a nice one. Uh, I always think, um, I remember talking about this years ago, like a high degree of integration. You know, if you've got lots of uh, disparate component sets. And in, in a funny way, the as electrification's emerged in industry, that's, I think in automotive in particular, that's been one of the big changes in mindset is everything's integrated now so in the past you'd have a team that worked on engine cooling and a different team that worked on cabin hvac and it's the same thing now and they have to get along nicely and that the sort of uh electronics was separate to the powertrain whereas now it's inescapably part of it and that high degree of integration is is very critical which makes it hard as a uh, unless you're a fully integrated tier supplier which uh, you know a lot of them are but it does make it difficult. Um, you selling a standalone inverter or standalone motor these days for for volume automotive would be a pretty difficult proposition, I think. And and coming back to you, Dan, what is it? Um, you know, what, what does the future look like for Magnax? Um, what do you see coming up in the next year or two from a, a business perspective that's um, that's got you excited? Well, I think in the future we will be uh, still busy for a long time because. As Peter said, um, Axofix technology is pretty young technology. So we're currently working on the second generation of this technology. But we see radio flux is already in its sixth generation. So it has been also going through a lot of incremental improvements over the last 30 years. 
So we see the same happening with Axoflux, which means that although the technology is already performing pretty well, it still has a lot of room for further improvements going to generation three and four. So our goal is to start with generation two uh, in terms of collaborations with OEMs. And then also they can uh, use our next generations also as further improvements for their powertrains if they choose for Axioplex, of course. So our future is um, keep keep doing, keep innovating and making sure that, that we can also uh, evolve this technology to, to something which is, uh, yeah, a really robust alternative in some cases for radio flex motors and and what do you think of the aero market and i'm particularly thinking e-vtols because <laughs> in 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 some ways um i mean one one application that is great for axle machines is is for fan drives and obviously an e-vtol is kind of a big a number of big fans do you see e-vtol kind of applications developing for for axial flux Yes, uh, I, this, this, this market is, of course, a lot uh, yeah, less mature. Eh? I think eVTOL is 10, 15 years behind automotive, maybe a bit more. The certification aspect is quite uh, difficult. And what you see is, especially in an eVTOL, they are combining multiple technologies, like like new, new motor technology, but also like hydrogen fuel cell technology and very strange uh, ways to propel these, these vehicles. So that takes takes some time. So the certification aspect is something that we have to take into account. But uh, focusing on our technology, it is by design an effective technology in terms of power density. And for aerospace, weight reduction is everything. And if you have like six propulsion systems, on average six, seven per eVTOL, and you can reduce 10, 20 kgs per, per motor, per propulsion system, then you can basically uh, add one one uh, additional person in, in the vehicle. So that's that's that does make sense. Uh, that's why axial flux, especially uh, from the academic world, is uh, taken taken into consideration immediately for aerospace applications. And in, in aero, um, like maybe more. Well, it's, it's a funny thing to say about aerospace because everything takes so long. <laughs> aerospace, obviously, the EV toll is. Uh, the future tech but but there's a lot happening today around the electrification of aircraft generally and kind of hybrid systems and electric actuation and things and that, again that's something axial uh, technology could lend itself to really well do you do you see uh, demand coming through for, for that kind of thing for electric drives f- for sort of more electrified aircraft rather than r- full-out electric aircraft larger aircraft well, we already see it uh, in, in for uh, pilot trainers, for instance. But okay, these are fully electric little aircrafts where you want to train pilots. 20, 10, 15, 20 minutes is enough. For larger aircraft, uh, it will electrify, but I see it more as a hybrid application where you're going to use uh, still sustainable aerofuels, for instance, but combine that with, with uh, electrification to... Yeah, to, to, to also reduce CO2 level and also noise. If you can take off electrically on an electrical way, then the noise will be lower. You can still operate in certain circumstances at night, for instance, or you can just optimize uh, for the moments that your normal engine, your conventional engine is warmer uh, or use it on, in, in the right circumstances. So that will further reduce uh, uh, indeed uh, CO2 levels. But fully electrified aircraft, especially for 
yeah, larger aircraft, 94 people or more. I, I, I'm not sure. Maybe in uh, in 80 years or something. <laughs> <laughs> but not not with a with a battery. Yeah, <laughs> a long time. Cool. And and Peter, just sort of looking forwards, like same question, but from a technology uh, point of view, with, with your business with your technology i mean it could be in the industry what's the like thing that's getting you excited basically what we are doing at the moment so i think we are i don't expect some really big technological jumps in the technology i think we you will see a gradual uh, improvement of the of the technology itself uh, because uh, we, we still see quite some 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 possibilities to to keep improving it um but for us we are mainly looking out to the let's say the, the 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 adoption of the technology by the 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 by the OEMs so like you said they are they are still uh, they are quite quite conservative they're um they have a lot of other problems uh, <laughs> on their minds at at the moment some of them are of course looking looking further looking a few years ahead on the technology front uh, and are really interested in in axial flex technology but a lot of others are still over their heads in the reorganization and then uh, trying to figure out what they have to do with their workforce, uh, trying to figure out how they can actually make a profit out of EVs, trying to figure out what they're going to do with their battery uh, materials, how they're going to source it, uh, make it uh, less dependent on certain um, single suppliers, for instance. Um, so then it's difficult to get their attention, uh, even if you have fantastic te technology, so, but I think this time, uh, this this point will quite in the quite near future. They they will be quite or much more open to it when 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 the dust has a little bit settled down a little bit, um, and they they find they really know they what 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 they basically want to do and have a real EV strategy, and and we have to be ready. Uh, by then, of course, to to completely demonstrate the the, the technology that it's validated that it's that it can be, can be produced, that it's that is basically ready ready to go. Of course, I also expect Mercedes-Benz by then to have been showing off the technology in their AMG uh, cars, which I, I expect to be quite quite impressive. Uh, actually, uh, if they use the technology in the right way, which I'm I'm sure they will, and that that will of course give another boost to the to the interest in, in the technology. Be an exciting time for you to see you know, what started in your garage, get into production and, and vehicles running around on the road um, using that uh, using that technology. Immensely satisfying for for both of you. It's been a, a, a tremendous journey that you've been on. So, I mean, that that's fantastic. That's, I think, all we, all we have time for today. Uh, leaves me to finish off by saying, so people will see down in the show notes, uh, we'll put some some links in. So you can find these guys and find Magnax and uh, follow up with them if you're interested. Thank you so much for, for joining me today, Dan and Peter. It's been really nice to get this opportunity to talk in some more depth and hopefully I'll see you in the real world soon. Likewise. Likewise, Ryan. <laughs> it was very nice to talk to you.